we've kind of made some changes to our our Sunday morning process, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to what we've got going now. Today will be a little bit more like what we normally do on a Sunday morning here at the barn. Um, still be a little bit different, but um, all I can say is this is still a, yeah, this is still an experiment. Um, so so bear with me on that. Um, and I don't know if all of this will translate to online. Um, and if it doesn't, just power through and try to get as much out of it as you can. Uh, and then we will be ending with a conversation um, on, on some text and some fun stuff. So what I want to do is I want to begin with a song. And this is a song that Noah actually wrote. And he kind of wrote it specifically for this moment in time in in the year in our historical situation um and it's very poetic so we're actually going to listen to this again in a little bit but uh i do want to bring up the lyrics so that you can try to kind of piece together the story he's telling um through this song um so this is mostly just enjoy this just sit relax be present, listen. So this is called Rain Dance by Noah. Ships with broken roads 
All right, so that was Rain Dance. Uh, Noah wrote that this past week. And um, again, you know, the lyrics, there's some startling parts to that. And um, there's some parts for me where I hear I'm like, that, that sounds like it's articulating what I'm experiencing in a way. And so today is going to be primarily about uh, like, how do we deal with tension that we live in, especially when we feel like there shouldn't be any, and yet there is, and we just gotta be honest about that. And so I wanted to offer this prayer um, that we, we have used before, um, but we haven't used it for a while. I think it's been a couple years since we've done this prayer together. Um, and, and Tracy just said that Noah's lyrics feels like a psalm, and I, I, I think that that's accurate in more ways than just the images of it. Um, we can get into that later if we'd like. But So I want to offer this prayer to us. And if you want to read along, um, or if, you, if you're one where you, know, you want to close your eyes and engage in this prayer yourself, that's fine. But I'm going to go ahead and, and read it. Father, give us the resolve to enter into the patience and willingness to live in the tension of life without closure, without resolution, and still be content. Let us experience the joy of this tension because it uncovers the process of becoming who we truly are. Bring us forward into the reality of your kingdom here on earth. May you, continue to be the source of every breath, thought, and action we take. Amen. I want to invite you all into a time of meditation. And again, I don't know if this will translate into online, um, but it's a big part of something we do, and it feels really appropriate right now, specifically this meditation, um, as I was reflecting on it, it just felt like, yeah, this is about where all of us are. And so if you wanna go ahead right now and uh, like turn off your camera and just sit and close your eyes and actually go through this as a meditation, please do. Um, you have absolute permission to do that. Um, if you more just want to be able to sit and follow along and think about these things, um, this will be a very guided meditation. I'll be talking all the way through it. And so if you're not one to like close your eyes and uh, kind of get into that meditative space, no problem. Um, that's not an issue. But however you want to engage with this, I invite you to do that. Um, and again, you feel free to turn off your audio, turn off your camera, and just sit and, and listen to this if you'd like. This is called a heart meditation. And I want to begin by inviting you to stop whatever you're doing and transition yourself to just right here, wherever you are, whatever room you're in, whatever house you're in, whatever space you're in, just be right there. And if you would like, go ahead and put your hand on your heart. And you do not have to, if that's uncomfortable for you, it's fine. But it's a very tactile expression of this meditation. So 
with your hand on your heart, I want you to begin by thinking of a place in your life where you have some unfinished business. Something that is a source of stress, of pain, of heartbreak, of anxiety. Maybe there is a person in your life and that situation is bothering you. Maybe it's just the chaos that seems to be unfolding all around us. Maybe it's something from your past or a regret or some darkness or some secrets or something hiding in here. And I want you to think about that. I want you to draw that into the center of your mind. Maybe you've got some walls you've put up. Whatever it is, what is a source of chaos in your life? Acknowledge that right now. Now I want you to let that go for a second and switch your focus. With your hand on your heart, I want you to turn your focus to your heartbeat. Feel your heart. Feel it beating. And as you take a breath, feel that air moving into your body and direct that breath into your heart. Feel the strength of this organ that is inside of you. Feel the power of your heart. Feel the beauty of your heart. Feel the mystery of what is keeping you alive. And as you feel your heartbeat, feel the wonder at how you did not earn your heart. There is nothing you did to make this happen. You didn't have to prove yourself. You didn't have to accomplish anything. Something loved you enough to give you the gift of life. And as long as your heart is beating, you have that gift and no one can take that away from you. Feel a sense of gratefulness for your heart that is keeping you alive right now. This organ that beats 100,000 times a day and pumps blood through 60,000 miles of vessels. You have this inside of your body and you don't even have to think about it. What a gift. And as you are feeling that steady rhythm, I want you to think of one thing that happened to you recently that you are grateful for. A person, a thing, a moment. Something that you are grateful for, and it can be simple. It can just be that it's sunny today. It can be that you're, you're home with people you love. It, it can just be that you woke up. Now, the second thing I want you to think about is think of a specific moment, an experience, a memory, something that you remember vividly. And it can be something magical or sacred or powerful or a moment where you experience just a bunch of love. Something that stands out in your mind that defines what is good. I want you to think of this memory. Bring it up. Now step into that memory. Try to remember what, what was around you. What was in the room? What, what does everything feel like? What does it smell like? Who's there with you? Try to be present in that moment as if you are there right now. How does that moment make you feel? Does it make you smile? 
What does that smile feel like? Does it give you a sense of warmth? What does that warmth feel like? How are you breathing in that moment? How are you breathing right now? When you are truly grateful for something, how does that make you feel? Keeping your hand on your heart. Now think of a recent moment, maybe something from this weekend, something that you're grateful for, someone you saw. Maybe it was just seeing the sun or feeling the warmth of the air. Maybe there was a coincidence that happened that made you smile. Maybe something unexpected happened or something came together in a beautiful way. Just now think of something simple that recently happened. And feeling your heart, feel, feel that heart beating. And what does your heart have to tell you about that experience, about that moment? How does your heart speak to you when you think of these good things? Now keep, keep feeling your heartbeat. Keep listening to that pulse. Keep breathing. And I want to invite you to go back to that unfinished business. That first thing you thought of. After we've now traveled through these beautiful, positive, grateful things. Go back to that unfinished business. Go back to the pain or the darkness or the stress or the anxiety. And after you've found this gratefulness, after you've reflected on the gift of your life, what is your heart telling you about that negative thing? How do you see that person or that situation now that you've started with the gift of your heart, this organ that keeps you alive, that you have no control over and yet gives you life. When you start there with this gift, how does that inform all of the other junk going around all of the time? If you want to keep your hand on your heart, please do. If you want to keep going in a state of meditation, please do. But I'm going to play this song again from Noah. And um, this time, just, just enjoy it. And maybe this song now might make a little bit more sense and might speak to you in a different way once we've begun with our heartbeat. So again, this is Rain Dance by Noah Martis. Black and 
get into some content now and uh, I'm gonna have a lot of stuff on on the screen um, so I'm, I'm sharing that with you all so hopefully you're able to see it and follow along that way um, this is gonna be called is there a word from the Lord resurrection doubt and Vincent van Gogh because it's really hard for me to go too long without talking about Vincent van Gogh so uh, alas, here we are. So here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do. Um, I am going to give some content. Uh, this will be similar to Palm, the Palm Sunday uh, content that we did. I'm going to just give some stuff, give some thoughts, explore some things. And then uh, I want us to have some conversation on that one, once that's done. Um, I feel like I feel like some of the conversations we've had, people have felt a little bit too quizzed and therefore have not uh, been as forthright about saying things. And uh, so my thing here is I'll, I'll try to give the information, but then I want to ask a question that everybody can have an answer to, which is what do we do with this? Um, so as I go, if you have paper or a notebook or your phone or however you wanna do it, write down thoughts, write down questions, something gets said where you're like, ah, I wanna go back to that, write it down make a note of it, and then once I get through everything, we'll, we'll hark back to whatever y'all wanna explore more or ask questions about, or if you just feel compelled that you wanna share something, we'll do that for a little bit, and then, uh, and then we'll, be, we'll be done for the morning. So, is everybody ready to go? I can only see a few of you, so I don't know if everybody's ready to go, but um, we're gonna start out with the Gospel of Matthew. Because here's the deal. Last week we, we did Easter, right? It's Easter Sunday, celebratory. We explored that really weird parable that uh, people this week were still uh, contacting me about. Like, I, I still have no clue what's going on with that parable, which is great. That means it's a good parable and you should keep listening to it or reading it 
um, to make it stick. Uh, but there's another side to resurrection that comes out of the Gospels. And I want to explore what's going on. There's, there's this different response to Easter. And last week we had said that Easter is not just one day. It's not Easter Sunday and then Easter's done. It's Easter Sunday and then you get this whole season of Easter. And that whole season of Easter is meant to be a reflection on what it means to be Easter people and continue resurrection and all of that. And so I want to bring up a part of that narrative that I think is important. It doesn't get brought up a whole lot, but there's something that happens in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew specifically, and we'll also look at the Gospel of John. And this response to Easter seems particularly appropriate during this chaotic crisis that is our historical reality. The timing of Easter this year is crazy. Like we're celebrating the over the conquering of death while our country is in a crisis, a pandemic, a quarantine. So I think we have to ask the same, the same question. And I really think it's better for us if we do. So gospel of Matthew chapter 28. So just, uh, yeah, I'll read this. Now the 11 disciples, because there's 11, because Judas had that thing. Y'all remember that? Okay, so the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's a part of the resurrection story in the gospel of Matthew. Now, um, I don't read this and I go, six of them worshiped and five of them doubted, and we have the split. I, I want to read into the story to hear um, that all of them worshiped, and yet all of them had some doubts at the same time. And when it says that they, they are at a mountain, um, this is recalling uh, Exodus language from Mount Sinai, you know, the Gospel of Matthew is constantly trying to position Jesus as a Moses figure. Um, so it's recalling that. And if you remember what happens at Sinai, not everything goes well. And all of them are complicit in the worship and the doubt. It's, so I, I, I want to imagine that all of the disciples are feeling conflicted and experiencing both, both sides of this. The problem is that, especially contemporary Christianity, we're really good at the first one they worshiped, really good at that. I don't know that we know what to do with the second one, except to say that that's bad and we chastise that and, and we want to say that's an example of what not to do, shame on those disciples. And I, I don't know that that's, that's the case because we get another example of this kind of story in the Gospel of John. Um, and if you're following along with the text, I've, I've tried to put all of the, uh, the chapters and stuff at the top. Okay. So this comes out of the Gospel of John, and, and most people are familiar with this story. But, but Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. 
All right, so here you get an example of a disciple doubting. He's, he's not quite just all in on what's going on with the resurrection. But I want you to notice what happens with Thomas. Because we've, we've sort of characterized him as like, oh, doubting Thomas, don't be a doubting Thomas. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Read the rest of the story. What happens next here? A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Which, quick side note there, if you try to shut the doors and insulate yourself against whatever God is doing in the world, uh, apparently Jesus still shows up. They like have these doors shut in this, in this room, and Jesus still gets in and he's like, hey, hey uh, peace be with y'all. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And what does Thomas do? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that Thomas says this? Because he's the only one in the entire gospel called John to give Jesus this title. So all of those disciples that didn't, that didn't have to do that, that didn't have, have the doubting, right? They don't ever call Jesus my Lord and my God. Thomas does. And I think it's important to see that this disciple believes more than anyone how does he do that? Through doubt. Thomas's doubt actually takes him further than anybody else was able to go. And so is this a bad thing? Should we chastise this? When we read in the Gospel of Matthew that some worshipped and some doubted, is that actually a complementary practice? Like, I think it's important to see as we celebrate Easter and as the season of Easter continues, that doubt has a place in the story. And here we are, 2020, with this situation going on, and we just celebrated Easter, and we have to look at it and go, does doubt still have a place in the story? And if we look throughout the biblical tradition as a whole, and even especially the early Christian tradition, like look at the Psalms. Have you read the Psalms? There's some pretty dark stuff in there. Uh, Abraham doubts. The whole book of Lamentations is a book of like throwing your fist up into the air. The prophets are constantly doing this. You could even make a case that Jesus does this when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so does it actually have a place in the story? I, and I'm not saying like, should we just accept it? And that's a compromise. And you know, sometimes people are going to doubt. I'm saying, should it actually have a place in the process of the story that we are telling? Should doubt and faith be dance partners with each other? And my conclusion is, is that yes, they should. Questions take you where answers cannot. And if we do not push for questions, we will never get to the places that answers will keep us. Questions take you where answers cannot. And so what about us? All right, let's get into a little bit of our contemporary situation. Because 2020 in general has been difficult. 
it's it's not you know we started off everybody's like all right a whole new decade and then i was like oh man this is this isn't going particularly well and unless you have your head firmly buried in the sand we get to easter and we have to wonder like what is going on and I do want to be a little bit confrontational here because um, unfortunately I do hear from a lot of Christian voices, especially very popular mainstream Christian voices in our culture. And there are certainly people who respond to things, um, especially tragic things or chaotic things or difficult things. And they respond with um, like, ignoring it and pretending and saying like oh no everything's all good you just got to believe you just got to have faith and there's this sort of like ignorance that i hear whether it's because of coronavirus or a tragic death um or just like things not going well in somebody's life and somebody's like i'm really struggling right now and they're like oh god's got you just you know don't worry about that and I think, I think that's kind of toxic and it's, it's not very caring and um, it doesn't actually lead to constructive good things. And what I would particularly push for is if we don't allow people to go there, we will never get where Thomas gets. If, if we're not willing to throw our fists up into the air and yell every now and then, we're never going to get to the places that those questions can take us. We're, we're going to lose part of the process. And um, a bit of a personal conjecture here. I'm notorious at this point um, for my dear love of Advent and Lent as well. And I kind of get a hard time. For that, I mean, most of you who are usually with us at the farmhouse, you know that like first week of Advent, I get up and I've got this smile on my face because I love the process and everybody else is just like, oh, here we go with Advent again. Tyler's going to do his death and darkness thing. And uh, I, I understand. I understand. But here's what else happens as a result of, of that is... I've had the unfortunate opportunity to be in a lot of situations of tragedy. And that's both personal um, and as my role as a pastor. And I've been in a lot of situations of conflict and a lot of situations of destruction. And something that will typically happen in the midst of that, and, and Vanessa will often say this to me, is like, how are you so calm in the midst of those things? And uh, I mean, part of it is everybody grieves differently and there's, there's really two different directions that you can grieve. And, and so that's a natural part of the process. And you see this with a lot of different people, but particularly for me, when I, when I find myself in those situations and I go like, all right, I've, I've got this. This is what needs to happen. Here's where we are. And I have this sort of calmness and somebody say like, how do you, how are you able to be calm? You know, my answer is like, cause I do Advent because I do Lent because I read the whole perspective of what's going on in, in our tradition, not just the good things. And uh, maybe uh, I think I actually, this. yeah, I, I would, 
this has kind of been a, a guiding, um, a guiding intention for me in, in my life. And I think this is, it's showing itself now. If, if Christianity did Advent and Lent well, we would be set up quite, quite well for what's going on. So this is the thought. Train in your good fortune to fortify yourself against the crisis. Rehearse the worst case scenario so that you won't recoil when suffering becomes reality. Peace of mind will no longer be dependent on your circumstance, and you can move through chaos when it inevitably comes. I think, I think that's why those seasons, Advent and Lent, are so important. And, and here's what I would, quick note on Christianity, uh, despite what people like Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland say. Uh, Christianity is an invitation to suffer. It's an invitation to endure. And like, remember the question from last week, how do we overcome death? Through death, through sacrifice, through selflessness. And that's a difficult thing. It, it, not, not only when you enter into Christianity, not only are you not promised that everything's going to go smoothly, you're actually promised that this is going to be difficult. But that difficulty, that suffering, that, that darkness that you're going to have to wade through, that invitation to take up your cross, that's going to lead to something more beautiful than it would be if you didn't do it. Like entering into the to following Jesus is all about pursuing what is real. And real will not always be glamorous, but it will always be beautiful. And I think that's the invitation that Easter 2020 is really forcing us into. Easter 2020 is going to be an Easter to remember. And more than any other Easter in my memory, this gives us the best opportunity to embrace this experience of the disciples and this tradition that difficulty can take you where comfort cannot. I think, I think this experience of Easter, that some worshiped and some doubted, we can see that pretty clearly this Easter. We're there. And I think it's about what it means to be a human being. So what, uh, what do we do with this? Now we got to get back to... Um, Back to this. All right. Is there a word from the Lord? This is actually a, a common painting of um, Israel's exile. And um, this line, is there a word from the Lord? This actually comes from Jeremiah 37. Okay. So I didn't like just come up with that. This is based on, on a text. Um, and a few weeks ago, I had talked about, because there was a lot of people who were saying that, this coronavirus thing is actually like God's global punishment for the things that we don't like that other people do. Um, and then on the other hand, it's people saying like, this is an opportunity to Sabbath. And I don't quite agree with either of those. I say, uh, this is actually exile. And it's a result of judgment that we see in Deuteronomy 28, which is not punishment. Okay. And um, some of you have like written these beautiful responses about how you understand judgment now. And it's like blown me away. But so this text, Jeremiah 37, is actually an exile text. And what's going on here is um, there's a king of Judah, Zedekiah. This is in the context of Israel is no longer autonomous. Okay, they're not ruling themselves. 
And Zedekiah is not listening to Jeremiah and therefore not listening to God. And um, what's happened is um, the Babylonians or what the text will call the uh, Chalcedians are in, in Judah, in Israel, and um, they're kind of occupying it. And then Egypt comes up from the south and is going to attack. And so the Babylonians leave. And so Zedekiah is like, what are we going to do? We don't have this protection anymore. But he's the guy who didn't listen in the first place. So then Jeremiah's traveling. He gets caught, imprisoned. They don't really like Jeremiah because he's been kind of mean. And within the context of that, um, we get this, this interaction. So uh, Jeremiah's in prison. Then King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, is there any word from the Lord? Right? So Zedekiah and Judah is about to get trampled by Egypt. And now he wants to go to Jeremiah and say, now does God have anything to say? Does Does this sound familiar to anybody on how we approach faith sometimes? It's like, okay, well, now that thing's, you know, a little bit rough, um, I'm, ready, I'm ready to listen, you know, I'll, I'll do what I have to do to make this right. And again, if you trained, if you listened, if you were obedient in the times where everything was comfortable, then when things get into a crisis, you still have peace of mind. You, I, I hope you're kind of making that, that connection there. Um, so this is what King Zedekiah asked. I think this is a question that we are asking right now. Is there any word from the Lord? I think that's an appropriate response to Easter. Well, Jeremiah answers him. And this is what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah said, there is. Then he said, you shall be handed over to the king of Babylon. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <laughs> that's the word of the Lord that, that he gets. And my question for us, is this where we are too? Right? We come out of Easter last week and it's like, resurrection, yes, death is being conquered. God has not given up on the world. Things are still happening. A new story is being told. The world's moving in this direction resurrection and then we get like to monday and it's like but why is this happening why are people dying why are families getting separated why on top of all of the other problems that are constantly happening in the world do things feel even more heightened right now and and that's i'm trying to emphasize like that's an okay not no not only is that an okay place to go that's a good place to go. That is a healthy place to go. That is a transformative place to go. And if we go there, we, things might actually get better. The disciples do this in Mark chapter four, right? There's that whole thing where Jesus is asleep while they're on the sea and, and they yell at him about that. And we turn that into like, oh, look, Jesus calmed the sea. He has power over creation. Really what's happening is Psalm 44 and Psalm 46 are being put into conflict. And Jesus says like, I know it seems like God is asleep in the midst of Gentile domination and foreign occupation of Israel. I know that's what it seems like, but be still because God's still at work here, even if it doesn't seem like it. Or you get that text in Matthew. Uh, I think it's Matthew 11 where John the Baptist is in prison and John sends his disciples to Jesus 
and says, um, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And, you know, that pretty clearly like, hey, John's having a little bit of a moment of crisis there. He's genuinely asking Jesus, like, I thought you were the Messiah. What's going on? Well, why would he ask that? Because Messiah, the hope of Messiah was that he was going to come and um, uh, kind of release the poor, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, all of these different things, heal the blind, cure the lame. And then the last one that's always kind of associated with that is set the prisoner free. And so John's been like, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, baptizes him, let's go, this thing's happening. And then John's in prison. And John's like, hey, I thought part of the deal was that the prisoners were going to be freed. I'm still in prison. What's going on? And Jesus's response to John is beautiful. Because he goes through the list and says, yeah, the, the poor are being liberated. The, the, the thirsty are getting drink. The, the hungry are being fed. The blind are cured. The lame walk. And he ends it. And he never says, and the prisoner is let free. And, and I sort of read that interaction in Matthew, sort of like, hey, John, I am Messiah, but it's not going to get better for you. But don't give up because the story's not over. And, and Jesus goes into this teaching of uh, blessed are those who don't give up on account of me. John, you're not going to get out of prison. It's part of it, but don't give up. Right? And maybe what we need to hear is like, is doubt simply a different kind of hope? Because we usually say doubt, if somebody who doubts, like they don't have faith, they don't have hope. Oh, no, no, no. What if doubt is a different kind of hope? What if doubt actually invites us into a different way of being? Because this, if you remember from last week, this is the promise of resurrection. It's a process. Jesus rising from the dead doesn't take care of everything all at once. And if you remember our, our parable from last week, Theodim, right? Theodim is sent back. He's been given this gift. He's seen uh, Lord Ellesmere and he's sent back and, and it's like, you still have work to do. And whatever's happening with resurrection, it's like building a house. It's like the, the water of an ocean carving a cliff face. It happens drop by drop by drop by drop. And it is a process. And that is where the hope comes from. Can you trust this process? Like when we ask, is there any word from the Lord? We have to be open to hearing kind of, just kind of a word. And it's that this is going to be a process. So this brings me to one of my favorite people, um, an artist. You all know where this is going. And, and, and I'll keep this brief because I have done this before. Um, but just think about Vincent Van Gogh's story as a parable for us on what we should do with this. Vincent van Gogh, um, he's the firstborn of his family, but he's technically not. Um, there was a child who was miscarried before him, and Vincent always felt that his mother wished that Vincent wouldn't have been the firstborn, um, and there was a lot of tension around that, understandably so. Um, Vincent constantly was unaccepted by his family his his family so his dad's a pastor so he's like a typical pastor's kid right his dad's a pastor um they live in this 
kind of small town, but it, it's not like a big metropolis. Um, it's a smaller village, but they want to be like high class. And so they, they try to get their kids to dress a particular way and do certain things. And Vincent just doesn't. He wants nothing to do with it. He rebels against it. And so his family kind of like turns him aside and he's not accepted by them. His uncle owns the biggest art dealership in all of Europe and, and possibly the world at that time. Um, so Vincent gets a job with his uncle because he's family and he fails at it and he gets fired and it doesn't go well. Vincent's response is he's going to go into the ministry and he has this deep passion for the ministry and he loves it. Um, but he's not very good at it. And he thinks that he doesn't all, it's not just because he has a passion for the ministry. He, he is very, very concrete in how he understands what it means to follow Jesus. He also thinks that if he becomes a pastor like his dad, his dad will love him. And so he tries this. He goes to seminary. Um, he's up from like four in the morning till late at night studying, and he still fails at seminary. As a result of that, he gets sent to this coal mining district to be a, a missionary, which is like the equivalent of a local licensed pastor. And um, he gets sent there. And it's basically like, this is the job nobody wants, so you can do it. And Vincent becomes so passionate about the social effects of the gospel that he lives um, in, a, in a stack of hay in this abandoned building. And he is constantly giving everything he has to this, the, the poor people in this coal mining area. And at one point, there's a story about how there's this explosion and this little girl uh, gets a pretty major wound in his arm. And so Vincent has given away all of his clothes except for one shirt. His response is he takes off that shirt and uses it to fix the wound on this little girl. Like this is, this is where Vincent's life has taken him. And it's beautiful. But then his superiors come, see the way he's living and says something uh, like no, no uh, pastor, no, no, no uh, leader of the gospel can live in conditions like this. And he gets fired from that. And that's when Vincent Van Gogh started painting at that point in his life. And, and in a lot of his paintings, you can see this tension with, he understands how the world could be. And then he sees how it is. And he understands that there's a big difference in this tension in between these two things. Um, and that's actually where this painting comes from, Starry Night. And this painting is like this, it's, it's built on how do, how do you get uh, a night painting where you use the colors to get darkness with this, this take on light. And you can kind of see that and how he uses yellow. But this painting is also, um, he's, he's, it's based on when he's looking out the window of his insane asylum. That's the situation Vincent Mango is in. And you can tell this cosmic sort of swirl that's happening there. There's like, this presence of the divine, um, which at this point in Vince's life, he pretty much renounced Christianity. He, he still understood himself as a follower of Jesus in a way, like the divine was important to him. But he renounced Christianity. And so this painting has this divine presence to it. And yet, if you notice in the village, all of the lights are on in these different buildings except for one. And it's the church. And there is a sense when Vincent Van Gogh paints this that he is hopeless, that he has a lot of questions. 
And yet Vincent Van Gogh kept fighting. And he kept trying to do something through his art that would add a little bit more beauty to the world. And here's the deal with Vincent Van Gogh. I am under the school of thought that believes that he killed himself. Um, whether or not that was like a, a very direct suicide, um, in some way he was very much okay with letting himself die. And what we have to, to name about Vincent Van Gogh is it's a tragic story. He was up against the machine and the machine won. And yet Vincent Van Gogh put a dent in the machine. And maybe the good news we have to hear when we feel like we are up against the machine and we wonder if resurrection is actually happening. What are we going to do about this is we need to hear like, hey, we need all the dents we can get. Just like John the Baptist, don't give up. Keep going, keep going. There's still work to be done. And if you enter into that place, you will do more work than anything else we could even comprehend. There's this poem um, called The Quitter. And this poem is famous because there was a guy uh, traveling through the Arctic and he had a huge team. Uh, Douglas Mawson is his name. Look up his story. It's, it's really, really amazing. And the short story is that he sets out on this exploration and things go terribly. Eventually everybody in his crew dies. They lose all of the supplies. And he has to get back to the same location by a certain date or else the people are leaving without him. And he's about a day away. He has almost no clothes left, no food, nothing. He's sick. He can barely walk. And all he has to do is make it one more day's trip. And he gets to this location where he's actually kind of close and he falls in this ravine and he's hanging by a rope. And he's, he's going ahead and going through like, my life is over. I'm going to just cut this rope off and going to fall to my death. And this is it. And in that moment, he recalls this poem and specifically this line where it says, just have one more try. It's dead easy to die. It's the keep on living that's hard. And when, if you're willing to go to these kind of places, you might have a thought that I should just give up. Like it's the people who go into doubting and deconstruction of, of the faith, et cetera. And then they just give up on it that I wonder, I don't think you'd actually doubted. And so on one hand, you can ignore it and you can pretend like everything's fine when it isn't. On the other hand, you can give up. And I think that, that, perspective of Thomas and the disciples sits right in the middle of those that says, no, I'm going to go to this place, but it's dead easy to die. It's dead easy to give up. I'm going to have one more try here. I'm going to keep on going. And that's how everything changes. If you pretend like everything's fine when it isn't, nothing will change. If you give up, nothing will change. You got to do something with these dark places in which you go. And so the first thing I would say is if you doubt, uh, you're in good company. You have an entire biblical tradition that stands with you in that. Second with doubt is that if you go to this place, let it be done in a way that compels you to see the world in a different way. Because when you see the complexity of the world, 
you're more likely to foster this divine imagination of what needs to happen next within that complexity. My, my take here is asking questions, especially about Easter, especially about coronavirus, the world we have asking questions will take you where answers can't. So let's be people who ask questions because it'll take us somewhere. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this. And then whatever questions, uh, thoughts, comments you have, um, I'd love to keep talking. I'm going to stay on for a while. Um, but if, if you're one who's like, you know, that I just need to, I'm going to go wrestle with this on my own, that's fine. Um, and you can, you can log out at any time. No hard feelings on that. But I do want to end with this quote, and then we'll, um, we'll open things back up. This has become a sort of mantra for me right now. In, in this situation, you know, when the, the whole thing started, like the quarantine stuff started like a month ago, um, I stood up in this barn. This, that was the last time we met in here. And I said like, hey, normal is done. This is an opportunity for the church to start changing culture and taking things the way that they need to go. Like we talk about make God's dream real in the world. We haven't been doing that in Christianity. We better step up our game. Um, so this has kind of become a mantra for me. So I'll share this, share this with you all. Let us hope that we will not return to normal. When we suffer, when we endure crisis, the landscape under our feet shifts and the world can't ever be the same. Returning to normal would be the hope of resuscitation. What we are interested in is inherently different than reviving the old for we are looking for resurrection. Therefore, embrace that normal is done and that what was normal was never the way this was meant to be in the first place because what was normal might have been insane. Instead, what we have is opportunity. Suffering and crisis is the loss of normalcy. Concerns and questions, worry and anxiety, hopelessness and doubt may become our driving fear and response but if we pay attention, we will notice something emerging from that tomb in the midst of our uncertainty, the opportunity to confront the world as it is in the hopes of the world as it could be. When we are confronted with our mortality, with apparent failure, and with suffocating hopelessness, we have the opportunity to retune our focus to what truly needs to happen. Unwanted experiences then, might be why our invitation is to a life of difficulty and suffering through selfless, cruciform patterns of living. And though it may begin with apparent hopelessness, it slowly awakens a different hope, reveals a different imagination, and as a seed emerging from doubt compels us to be the very thing we were looking for in the first place. In other words, it is in the questions after Easter that we may, for the first time, truly find resurrection. At this point, if there's, if you took any notes and you have a question or you have a thought on something, and it can be anything, um, you can either raise your hand or use the chat or just go ahead and unmute. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing all what all you guys think. In particular, like, okay, so what do we do with this?
it looks like a couple of you may be typing, so I'll, I'll hope for that. By the way, it's really cold in this barn because we haven't like been turning the heat up at all. I'm freezing right now, like I'm shivering. So I, if I get up to go put on a coat, don't judge me, all right? All right, come on. I'm gonna start calling on people. So Hans and I were talking about how, um, why it's <laughs> all, all I can tell you is it sucks that you have to suffer in a relationship that's supposed to be loving. Like, what, what do you mean is, by a relationship that's supposed to be loving? This is so. This is why when I was suffering so much, like there were so many things in my life that um, were just so horrible. This is why I said to God, if this is your kind of love, I don't want it. And it was a really dumb statement. Like I'm totally willing to admit that, but it's just hard for me to imagine that a good relationship is a relationship with a God that watches us suffer. Like it was it John that was in prison. Yeah. Yeah, and that he sees John in prison and he sees him suffering, but he doesn't he doesn't fix it. All right, so this is a good example of go with that thought, but don't go to the apathy direction. And also let's not pretend that this isn't a thought. Where will if you if you lean into that, where will it take you? Um and I will say that that thought itself if you don't do anything with it, can become really problematic. Because that, yeah, leads, us, that leads us to God's out there watching us suffer like ants. And I don't want anything to do with that God. Um, and for me, like a lot of people who say they're atheists, that's what they mean, is they're atheists to that. And I will concur. I, am, I also don't believe in that God, right? Um, but there was a couple parts of your language that I would just switch um, that like what kind of God would watch us suffer you're assuming that God's watching isn't my my understanding is like what kind of God would suffer with us the way this God does the picture that we get even throughout exile um, in the Old Testament is still that that God suffers with Israel. God suffers with Jesus. God suffers with John the Baptist, like in all of this stuff. And this has been, um, this has been my interaction with uh, a couple of the families who have been diagnosed with coronavirus. Is, is they're at, like, they're literally asking this question in the heat of the moment, right? It's like, what kind of God would allow this to happen to this person I love? Mm-hmm. And I want to switch that thinking of like, you're assuming God did this. And what if the better image is like God's sitting in that hospital room with that person you love, feeling their pain and suffering with them? That's the image I want to like. So I go into that question, Chantel, and I come out of it there where I go, oh, what, what this really means is we have a God who suffers with. 
which is literally one of the names that's used for God in, in the Bible. We have a God who suffers with. So now what does that mean? Oh, that, that means every time I go have compassion with somebody, I'm actually being the presence of God to them, right? The, see, see how that takes you into like a, a more nuanced perspective in the midst of that. Um, but I, I do think it, it can, if you don't do anything with that, I do think it can take you to that dangerous place of like, oh, God's just up there pulling strings and causing suffering. The image we actually get when you throw your fist up in the air is God's right next to you, also throwing up God's fist in the air, and God suffers with us, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple things on chat here. You guys are really getting into this. Tracy said, when God did not release the prisoners, could it have been he released people who were prisoners to poverty, et cetera, and not literal prisoners? Yes, particularly if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, you see that that is marked with Jesus, and the prisoners throughout the Gospel of Luke, those in captivity, are all the people who are living in expense to the Roman Empire, right? So you're definitely right on that, Tracy. But for John the Baptist, in his immediate situation, it's like, hey, I'm in prison. You're supposed to free prisoners. Huh? What's going on with that? And Jesus' response to him is um, a little bit confrontational. Um, Christy Lactas said, I was raised to not question anything. So now as an adult who wants to grow and learn, questioning is a muscle I have to intentionally exercise. Questioning everything you knew and living my own life and not my parents is a new freedom and so exciting. Um, I mean, all I can do is say like, right on, keep going with that. Um, But also what I hope happens when people ask questions, especially about traditions, is that your, your questionings actually lead you to affirm some of the things that you might not have liked before. Um, there's a certain adolescence coming around to going, um, I'll use an example from my life, which was hymns. Um, so I don't like, like worship music in general. Most of you know this about me. Um, but I definitely don't like CCM <laughs> any, at, at all. And uh, when I rebelled against all of that music, uh, it was against hymns. And, and what I ended up finding was, oh, there's a lot of ancient hymns that are really beautiful. And so I actually, uh, something I rejected and questioned, I came back to with a more like matured acceptance of. And, and I think that's the same about various theologies and a lot of stuff where it's like, hey, if that's, if that's traumatic and deconstructive, yeah, throw it out. But don't be surprised if later your questioning causes you to come back and reaffirm some of those things in a new way, okay? But I, I like that, that journey is so important. Um, Trisha said, didn't John end up getting beheaded while in prison? Yep, he died. Um, and I think that's part of what Jesus is saying is, this isn't gonna go well for you, John. Like, you're going to die in prison, but don't give up that I'm still the Messiah, you know. Um, ooh, Sean Clark, aren't some of, uh, of the prisoners released through their death? I like that. Uh, what happens to the insurgent who's crucified with Jesus on the Gospel of Luke, right? Today you will be with me in paradise. Like there's something profound about 
if if life ends at death, then death won't be very surprising to us. But remember that poem from last week, um, uh, where where death is life disguised. If God is renewing all of creation through the resurrection of the dead, well then the story's not over. Okay. All right, that was like a hammer through of different questions. Any anything else? Let's uh, keep going if if you'd like. I, I got about thirteen more minutes that I can chip away with this. Okay, so Trisha just said a comment. It's a pretty long one. You all wondered where I got my long-windedness from. Um, how can we rebel against this, this being people trying to put things back to normal or work towards resurrection changes that will renew the good in the world and good for the world? Um, so a friend of mine that some of you know, Steve North, talks about how change happens through a wave crashing. And um, he particularly talks about this in reference to... Um, church culture like for for a couple decades we've known like the church has got to make changes if it's going to survive and he uses this image that it's going to be like a wave and we can either get ahead of that wave and ride the wave or the wave will crash on us and we'll have to pick up the pieces either way we're gonna it's gonna be forced on us and we can get with it or we can experience the crash and when you talk about like behavioral change psychologically there's three ways that we, you change uh, intentionally through some sort of like aha moments um, or through suffering. And so it, I look at what's happening now as we have the opportunity to change via suffering. We also know, I'm sorry, I'm using my hand as a diagram, but we also know that once change begins, there are, um, particularly four different reasons why we resist change. And so that's what you're seeing right now is we suffered. And so that's going to force things to change. And now you're seeing the resistance to it and you're going to keep seeing it in months and months to come. You're going to see all these forms of resistance. And that's where I say the church's opportunity is to go, Hey, wait a second. What if we didn't resist this? What if we learned from it? And that's where I bring up exile of the judgment is to say, this has happened as a result of things. And every time we're in exile, we have a choice to return away from what brought exile in the first place. And I think that is a theological perspective. And culture does not work theologically, works philosophically, scientifically, etc. We have a theological bend that we can bring in to say, is there a, a destination for the trajectory of the world? This situation is inviting us to look that in the face and go, can we do things differently? I, so I think the church will be the biggest catalyst of that. Government, um, media, those kind of things, they, they have a stake in the game staying normal. The church has a stake in the game making changes because our vision is still out there, the resurrection of the dead and renewal of creation. We're the only ones, and there's other organizations and perspectives too, but we're one of the few organizations that has this particular bend towards that, starts going over there. And now we have an opportunity to lean into that. Unfortunately, the church has often placated normalcy and benefited from it. 
And so you will see a lot of churches going like, oh, no, 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 let's get back to how things were, because that was really convenient. So is anybody else going to talk? Or are you guys just going to chat me questions all day? Did anybody have any questions about the content or did you want to, did you want to focus on something or did you disagree with something that, I mean, that was my opinion. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't like some absolute statements I was making. I I'd like to say that the researched opinions and uh, formulated ones, but they are opinions. So you can disagree with my perspective on that. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. <laughs> um, which, thank you for the recommendation to turn up the heat or put on a jacket. I will not turn up the heat because I am training myself in times of comfort. <laughs> Some of you started shaking your heads when I said that. Um, no, I do have a jacket like right here, and I just haven't put it on yet. Um, but that, that line, Bob, hope for the best, but plan for the worst, I think that is a very good articulation of like a, a Christian ethic, which is like we have hope and we're going to, you know, turn ourselves towards that hope, but we're also prepared for what's going to be involved in reality. And if we, if we do that, like if, if we sit well in reality, I think my whole point is we will better move towards that hope. Um, yeah, uh, Kelsey, I just, I'm just reading yours right now. That's awesome. I love that. I love that thought of that move from why is this happening towards putting pieces together to make something more beautiful out of it. Do y'all remember we talked about um, wasabi, which is a Japanese concept. Uh, we talked about this during Advent. Um, that there is a beauty to a broken piece of pottery because it reflects the reality of what it's been through. And so they'll, they'll fix broken pottery and display that and say that's more beautiful than the pristine new one. And I think that's a perspective on change and um, difficulty and suffering that we got to bring back into our culture. Were there any specific questions about the content? Um, or was there anything that you wanted that you maybe thought like that's that's something that we should focus on? Um, the the one thing that stuck with me is like questions can take you where answers can't. Um, that that's something that's really hitting with me this week. But anything any like things that are hitting with you or questions that you had about the content? Something that was. Um hitting with me today and it's kind of weird how things like this happen i was just reading an article yesterday um are you guys familiar with um there's, there's a movie band of brothers it's about easy company and the airborne um uh unit that dropped in on normandy yeah um their um their platoon leader was um, a young officer that spent um six months in europe before the invasion planning and it, in uh, the article basically just talks about how when everyone else went out and partied and blew off steam 
he stayed back and studied field manuals and studied the tactics of generals and the art of war and things like that. And, um, um, you know, not, not that this happened with everyone, but he did a really good job at getting everyone through. They got the missions completed. And one of the, the attributes that he seemed to have was that when things were really, really crazy and chaotic, he was just calm and knew what to do because he'd um, kind of played those scenarios through in his mind over and over and over again when um, when things were not when he, you know when, when things were good basically when he was safe and uh, it just really it's like two days in a row that that same sort of message has hit me um, that it just makes a lot of sense you know it makes a lot of sense to his name's um, Dick Winters okay. Um, but there's there's some some articles online about how he was and, and the the really interesting thing is he was like a twenty something when he pulled this off and um, I can't even imagine wow yeah can't even imagine but um, there was a saying when I was in the military um, the more you sweat in peacetime the less you bleed in war and I think that kind of um, summarizes the the idea the, yeah the harder you train the the more effort and energy you put into knowing what you're going to do when things do get bad, the better off you're going to be when things get bad. Yeah. The stoicism has a, a concept of intentional discomfort and mm. intentional discomfort is something you do while things are normal. So that when things are not normal, you're prepared for them. Um, and, and it's actually where the idea of fasting comes from. So a fast is a way to have intentional discomfort so that can help change you. So you're better prepared. So it, I mean, that's, that's where a lot of that, that thought line comes from. You know, I also think a much worse metaphor than um, military, but sports, the whole point of practice in sports is to put yourself in a position so you could better handle the real-time moment. And, um, you know, to look at, at Christian ethics as a prepar preparation for chaos so that we can actually make something good out of chaos, like Kelsey's saying, you know, that, that's kind of what we're doing here. And that's why fasting and these seasons are important. It's also why our invitation is into death. It's into suffering, um, which, which Chantal, I want to come back to that. That just sparked something in my mind. I would say it's the same, and I think this analogy is biblical. It's the same as when you take marriage vows, right? When you say, I do, you're not going like, and then everything's going to be perfect. It's you say, I do, knowing there is going to be suffering that results from the relationship. That just by putting two people together, there's going to now be problems. That's a natural outcome. And yet, that suffering happens together. And if that suffering happens together, now you're actually going to create something better. And like Vanessa and I's best seasons of transformation and growth have been when we've sat down and go, gone like, all right, so this sucks right now. And we've both ticked each other off. So what are we going to do? And we mm -hmm. deal with that stuff so that we actually change. And, and I think that's the invitation of faith, right? You know, doubt is comparable to I'm going to confront this situation with my spouse whom I'm committed to and who we said we were, we were going to have moments like this. And now we're going to, this imagination is going to be revealed for how this can be better. And, you know, there's moments where Vanessa and I'll start having some conflict and, and I'll, part of me will be like, yes, because this means 
we're going to do something. We're going to be better than we were today, tomorrow. Tomorrow we will be better than we were today because of this. And I think faith is, it's similar. And I think that's why we're often referred in this very wedding language between the divine and humanity, you know? So that's, that's how I would continue to unpack that whole idea of like, what's the suffering with, like with God? It's like a spouse. Um, and that's our invitation within the midst of it. But if your spouse does not suffer with you, now you have a problem, right? So. That's pretty profound. No, I think I, I think I understand that. I think the conclusion that I came to is I wish that God would have designed it, that we learn and grow through um, being happy. <laughs> and I'm just really mad about the design. It reminds me of like when I um, joined cross country my senior year, like I didn't run cross country until my senior year and all my friends were running. And I really just oh. wanted to be good at running long distance without the work. I just wanted us all to go yeah. for a dog. And then some of us would be first and some would be second. And that's how it would go. So there's a, a, a Christian ethicist named Ellen Ott Marshall um, who writes a lot about this. Uh, her, so Ellen Ott Marshall, that's the name. And she says that what, what the actual problem is, is we have given um, conflict a negative connotation. And we should not have done that. And so she has this whole book on ethics that's based on um, let's see conflict as has no moral value. It's what you do with conflict that will either be good or bad. Because, I mean, that's the whole way the world works, right? Is like you want to you wanna be in shape? Well, you're going to be uncomfortable. But if you learn to see that discomfort not as discomfort, well, then you actually enjoy it. Um, but I get, I get your, your qualm with like, this seems like a, de a design flaw here. Shouldn't, shouldn't, uh, things I like also be good for me. And the con <coughs> the contrast is there's a stoic line that says, um, if it's easy, it's not worth doing. And I, I try to consider that when I'm in various situations, but. Um, all right. Well, I, uh, we've got some groceries going on here. Um, and if you ordered groceries, you can come pick them up if you'd like. Matt is, is here doing all that, but I'm going to go help him get some of that done. Um, oh, now you all wait until the last minute to send in your comments. Uh, Using chat because I'm not sure my laptop has a microphone. That's fair. I'll, that's an excuse, but it's fair. Uh, the God's got you being toxic is relevant to me. Um, I know one person who passed from Corona, one who just came through it, and one who is on the roller coaster. To imply that God is picking and choosing who gets better did not sit well with me. So I appreciate the permission to not embrace the God's got this mindset and being allowed to go into the negative. And I would just say, Tracy, realize that God's with you in that process. Like God's also going like, yeah, this isn't fair. This shouldn't have happened. It, honestly, that's been the most groundbreaking thing with the family that I've been helping through this is them realizing like God didn't smite us. Instead, God's with us in this. Um, that's been a more powerful, and, and seriously, 
that's, that's a beautiful image of Jesus's death and resurrection, right? Like God suffers with us and then helps us see it through. Um, Amanda said, I have found personally that though the suffering is what produces growth, it doesn't necessarily happen in the suffering. It's easier, the easier times that gives me a space to reflect on the suffering um, and use it for growth. And yeah, I, I would, because remember, let's call, say conflict has no moral value. It's what you do with conflict that will create growth or apathy. Um, and I mean, the biggest indicator of the trajectory of someone's life is like, how are you working through conflict right now? Because everybody's in conflict all the time. Um, so how are you working through that conflict? But um, this was a lot of fun. Those of you who are still here, um, did you like this process better than kind of the open-ended conversation? Did you like the song, the liturgy, the, the initial talk followed by conversation? Um, because I, I, I felt this, I felt this felt more like us. Um, and, uh, okay. So it sounds like there's some consensus there. Um, so we'll keep going with that. But again, feel free to, uh, email me or contact me if you, if you, if there was something where like, I didn't quite have this formulated, I need to think about it. And then I'd like to ask a question that is absolutely fine. Um, otherwise, grace and peace be with all of you. Um, thank you guys so much for being here. This was, it's glad, I'm glad we can still have some communal formation despite the situation. So we will see you all next week. I don't know quite yet what we're going to talk about. I have a bunch of ideas written down, but if you have something you specifically want to explore, send that to me early in the week and I'll consider it because um, I want to talk about things that are interesting to you all. Okay. So grace and peace be with you all. We'll see you soon.